the well-known New England theologian of the 18th century, maybe you've heard of him, Jonathan Edwards, once penned these words regarding the importance of spiritual vitality in the life of the family. He said this, Every family ought to be a little church, consecrated to Christ and wholly governed and influenced by his rules. Listen to that again. Every family ought to be a little church, consecrated to Christ and wholly governed and influenced by his rules. Friends, if that's true, what kind of family did you grow up in? Was your home life like a little church, as Jonathan Edwards exhorts us to, consecrated to Christ and wholly governed and influenced by Christ's rules? Was your home a place where family meals were eaten in peace and gratitude? A home where apologies were sincere and a home where forgiveness was extended. A home where sharing one another's toys and possessions among siblings was a joy and rarely a burden. A home where telling the truth was normal. And a home where hiding secrets from one another only occurred for surprise birthday parties and wedding anniversaries. A home where the washing of the dishes, the making of the bed, the cutting of the grass, the changing of the diapers, the getting up at night and feeding the baby, and the endless chores around the house were all accomplished in a teen-like fashion. Everyone played their part, working together in beautiful harmony. No one person had to do it all. No one was taken advantage of. No one felt left in the dust. Everyone knew their role in the family, and everyone was content with their lot from God in their family. Did you grow up in a home where there was no complaining, no grumbling, no eye-rolling, no slamming doors, no screaming, No whining, no cold shouldering, no spouse sleeping on the couch, no child feeling left out, and no child thinking the world revolves around them. Did you grow up in a home where your family theme song, As You Went to Church, was from Lionel Richie and the Commodore's 1977 hit, I'm Easy Like Sunday Morning? For you, was home sweet home really more than just a cliche? It was truly sweet. A family where what you see is what you get. A family life that others wish they had. And a family life that everyone else enjoyed being around. Well, if that's the kind of family you grew up in, you are immeasurably blessed. Super blessed. In fact, you're more blessed than Jesus was in his earthly family. We know from John's gospel that Jesus' brothers did not even believe in him. And though his mother was highly favored as the virgin birth of which he would be born, Mary and his earthly father Joseph, along with his siblings, guess what? We're still sinners. That's right. Jesus' mama, Jesus' earthly stepdad, and his siblings were messy, 
hard-hearted, discontented, spiritually dead sinners just like us in need of a Savior. And guess what? Jesus lived with them. And even if half the traits that I just described were true of your family life, friends, you are still blessed. And brothers and sisters, don't take for granted with how wonky and full of warts your family upbringing might have been, take time, even this afternoon, to thank God for the good and the grace he gave you in your upbringing. Let that be a way to fuel God's faithfulness to you, even in the midst of imperfections in your life. But for the vast sea of mankind, for both churchgoers and non-churchgoers alike, these were not the normal rhythms and characteristics of people's upbringing. In fact, most of these were not even most of our experiences in our upbringings during our childhood years. Somewhere along the way in our family genealogies and in our family trees and in our upbringings, in our parents' upbringings, in our parents' parents' upbringings, friends, sooner or later we find problems really big problems. Every family that has ever existed under the sun since the first family rebelled against God in the garden is profoundly dysfunctional. You ever had someone say, well, my family, we're full of dysfunction. Well, welcome to the human race. You're not special in that. Last time I checked, the perfect family bonded in the garden, and it's been dysfunctional from Genesis 3 on. Maybe you grew up in a substance abuse family, the conflict-driven family, the violent family, the authoritarian family, or the emotionally detached family. You see, for many families, including even in this room this morning, yelling and screaming was normal. Taking and stealing was expected. Hiding secrets and holding grudges was a strategy for survival, not a vice to overcome. And mom and dad, they weren't really lovers and friends. They might have been at home at times, but they were more like two random ships passing in the night. Maybe you even overheard your parents when you were a child saying that they're staying together for the kids, but for really no other reason. But even if your childhood was bursting with warm, nostalgic fuzzies as you think about your upbringing this morning, there's still no guarantee that you'll experience the same family bliss in your present family or your kids' future family or your grandkids' future family. You see, no matter how great and wonderful your upbringing or my upbringing was like, or how wonderful your family life might be like today, it may not always be like that. The reality for us all is that dysfunction and division, bickering and breakdown, hiding sin and taking advantage of one another is inevitable for every family to face on this side of heaven. I remember several years ago, Mark Dever, my former senior pastor years ago, uh, he said he got to meet the great-great-grandson of Jonathan Edwards. 
as he engaged with him in a conversation, guess what Mark never found out? He was a staunch atheist. He could give a rip about his great-great-grandfather who started the opening quote of this sermon. You see, there's no guarantee that because your family's present upbringing will necessarily be true of the generations to come. But but why is that? Why is there no guarantee that our families will not be full of dysfunction? Why is the experience for so many that home feels like a war field rather than a safe haven? Again, think about it. Of Of all people, Christians should think biblically and logically. Selfish sinners living together in a home. Selfish sinners having to learn how to share possessions and intimate aspects of our lives. Selfish sinners who see the good, the bad, and the ugly in one another. All while having different personalities, different interests, not to mention different levels of spiritual interest in God and his word. Uh, Friends, most of us do not grow up with families and Many of us know this from raising our own children and knowing our own selves as children. The virtue that Jesus gave, it is more blessed to give than receive, somehow gets forgotten at Tuesday night at about 8.30. It's usually survival of the fittest that's more true for our families. When you combine all these complex and confusing variables, friends, you're going to get dysfunction. Yet even among Christian families, there is still breakdown and dysfunction along the way. We're we're not exempt. Even among members of our own congregation that might appear happy, holy, and humble on Sunday, it might be a very different experience in their home Monday through Saturday. In fact, even amongst those families that are often most looked up to, there is a lack of depth in what it means to fear the Lord in their closest relationships. Author Donald Whitney remarks that after years of observing families and churches, he has witnessed a massive gap between our corporate worship on Sundays and the lack of family worship the rest of the week. Notice what he says. I am persuaded from my own ministry experience in hundreds of churches that so little family worship regularly exists in Christian homes today that even in most of our best churches, Most of our best men do not even pray with their wives and children if they have them, much less lead them in 10 minutes or so of worship as a family. Friends, that should should wake us up. If we're going to be a bright witness for Jesus out there to the unbelieving world, it's going to begin right here at home. That means sooner or later, carrying your cross might simply mean dealing with the dysfunctional junk in your family. No longer sweep it under the rug, no longer turn a blind eye, but actually confront what has been swept under the rug for months, for years, even for decades. Love it, apart from the supernatural grace of God transforming each one of us and our families, we will remain dysfunctional. Friends, we are like a family train going down the train tracks, and apart from God guiding us, we derail and we crash. So, 
Sounds like some pretty bleak news, right? How are we going to fix it? How do we address and expose and correct these hot-button issues that deeply affect the most personal aspects of our lives, in our families, in our churches, even amongst friends we have who profess to know the Lord? What do you think it's going to require as the people of God to be concerned about the things that matter most to God and actually motivate us to do something about it? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 227. If you don't have a Bible at home you can read, you can take that as a gift from our church to you. This morning we pick back up in our current sermon series in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And the focus of Nehemiah's leadership is about to change. Up until this point, he has been leading God's bewildered and broken people and rebuilding the walls around the city of Jerusalem, which is really reestablishing them back in their homeland. Back in Nehemiah 3, if you remember, we had the chart of all the different places they were rebuilding around the wall. One of the biggest things we learned from that is that we saw the sweet harmonization of unity amidst diversity among God's people. They had a mind to work, the scriptures say, and they had a mind to work together. They had teamwork. And friends, the same is true of the church today. If we're going to accomplish God's work in God's way, it will require every member of his body contributing to the work. And then last week, we stared intently at the truth that God's work will be opposed by God's enemies sooner or later. Uh, Satan, as their spiritual father, blinding the minds of unbelievers, we know that spiritual darkness schemes against and tempts God's people, and Christians need to be prepared for the battle. We know from Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, that we need to be clothed in the armor, the body armor of Christ, which is really putting on Christ's likeness, holding fast to the sword of the Spirit, as we wage war against the darkness. So in Nehemiah 4, we kind of left off, though, in a pretty chilling scene, right? There's these jealous leaders wanting to undermine Nehemiah's leadership. They are trying to overthrow and stop the good work that had begun. We are left off with that really eerie scene where the men are out by the wall. And Nehemiah says they're laboring on the work with one hand and holding their weapon with the other. In our passage today, Nehemiah's focus turns from defending against outside threats to their community to addressing an internal threat within the community. You see, so far in Nehemiah, things are heating up on the outside, but things have been slowly imploding on the inside. Let's find out what this imploding was, and how Nehemiah takes initiative to deal with it. Nehemiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Please follow with me. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat. And keep alive. 
There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you were exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers so that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending the money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember, for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is God's word. How do you know that your faith in God is real? 
do you know if you truly fear the Lord? How do you know if your Christianity has some teeth to it? Your faith in God is real when your faith in Jesus Christ is exercised through love and obedience to God. Your faith in God is real when your faith in Jesus Christ is exercised through love and obedience to God. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 5.16, faith working through love. Nehemiah's faith in God would now again, as it was last week, be exercised, put to the test to see if these faith muscles were real as he would have to come face to face with the pain and disappointment of discovering egregious sin. Egregious sin that had been committed among the people he loved. The agony he would experience in his soul as a result of seeing God's people not loving one another as they ought. In verse 1, we begin this section by encountering an emotionally distressful situation. Let's look at it together. Nehemiah 5, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Have you ever walked into a room and you can just tell something just kind of blew up in a conversation? Maybe you just got off work and you're coming home and it almost looks like a bomb went off in your house. Kids are standing in corners, mom with her head down, face in her hands, dad storming off, walking outside to cool off, so he says. Or maybe you've witnessed someone take a long phone call after getting off the phone. They sit down and they're in utter silence and disbelief. Or maybe you've walked into the conference room after a big board meeting at work and judging from everyone's faces, it was a rough meeting. It's quiet, it's dense. And you can tell, something's up. But then all of a sudden, someone speaks up and explains what's going on. Well, here in Nehemiah 5, someone speaks up. And in fact, a lot of somebody speak up. A lot of people, specifically many wives, speak up. And what we discover in Nehemiah 5 in Nehemiah's leadership tenure is the first family conflict that has arisen since he arrived in Jerusalem. This is the first recorded family feud in Nehemiah's leadership. The first family blow up, the first family intervention where dysfunction is hitting the fan. Did you notice there in verse 1, this was not just some kind of small scuffle, this was a great outcry. Uh, That word great can be translated also widespread outcry. In other words, this was not just kind of a one-to-one, one-off, no big deal, keep it on, keep it on. No, this was actually touching the entire community. Not just your family had this issue, but many families were having similar issues. And it says that a great outcry of the people and their wives was against a specific group of people. Now, who was this outcry against? I mean, was it against the enemies of God? Was it against Sambalot, Tobiah, 
and Geshem who were actually threatening to stop the work. That would make sense, right? Wives see danger and they call out for help. But the text says this outcry arose against their Jewish brothers. They were in opposition to, they were offering a complaint, an accusation to their own families, their own kindred, their own people, people they were in covenant with before God Almighty, people they had lived with, people they had worked with, people that had blood, sweat, and tears with them rebuilding the walls. Friends, sweet unity had slowly eroded over time into bitter dysfunction. Beloved, every good and perfect gift comes from God, but behind every blessing from God is sin lurking at the door to ruin it. What would have caused this outcry? What would have caused this division amongst people that once shared such sweet unity? What was the poison corrupting the waters? Verses 2 to 5 give us further details. Look with me starting in verse 2. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Friends, you thought Nehemiah had his hands full in Nehemiah 4, and now he's got his hands full in Nehemiah 5. Three different phone calls, three different emails, three different text messages, three different, hey, pastor, can I stop you in the hallway to tell you something? Three different charges, different but related, came to his desk. And verse 5 says, this accusation was not against unbelievers out there, but against people of their own family. He says there in verse 5, did you read the complaint? Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. You'll even notice there in verses 2, 3, and 4, you'll see that same phrase over and over again, for there were those who said, for there were those who said. In other words, Nehemiah is having to deal with similar but different complaints, different disputes from three different areas of the community. And if you really just boil it all down, if you had to put it on the bullet point list, can you put it on a sticky note for me? Can you just, can we cut this phone call off and just synthesize it for me? What's the issue? Here's what's going on. There's at least five things, five factors that are poisoning the well. You don't need to write these down. These are kind of clunky. Uh, first, there was a lack of concern and support for the families who were working on the walls. Uh, the work was spread thin. Uh, Daddy and Uncle Jimmy and Jethro, they were all having to work on the walls and prepare to fight. And Mama's back at home trying to feed mouths, and they're selling their kids off into slavery. It is a really rough time. They are spread thin. Secondly, there's a famine. Friends, we don't really know what a famine is in this country. 
We are the wealthiest, most prosperous, and I would say wealthy, probably prosperous generation in humanity, you know, if you look back from the very beginning. We've got food at our fingertips, and there was scarcely enough food to even have another meal. Thirdly, there was likely the reality of greedy merchants overpricing the food, exploiting poor people that had very tiny bank accounts. Fourthly, there was an excessive amount of taxes the Persian king collected. And five, these Jewish men, they're not named, but they are given titles, officials and nobles. They were like harsh pawnbrokers, loan sharks who were taking advantage of the less fortunate. In short, the problems all centered around money, food shortage, oppression, and unbearable living conditions that were ripping their families apart. Because of the famine, in which we don't really know how long it lasted, there was panic and fear everywhere. Just like we would feel the pressure of putting food on the table to feed mouths that are depending on us, these Jews did too. And in this particular situation, friends, this is not like harps running out of milk or bread for a few days. This is a matter of life or death. This wasn't like what is so common today where a guy or gal in their 20s or 30s is trying to live the lifestyle of their parents in their 50s or 60s. These Jews aren't trying to keep up with the Joneses or live the American dream or live beyond their means. No, this was a matter of survival. It appeared the emotions were running high and patience running thin. Have you been there lately? Have you had your emotions running high and your patience spreading thin? If so, it can be hard to wake up most days. Your adrenaline kicks in and you tax your nervous system and you're exhausted all the time. You can't sleep, you can't eat, you can't think, and you wear out everyone around you. Friends, if that's even been you lately, or it's you this upcoming week, God cares. He hears your outcry. He sees how thin you're being spread at work. He knows. But what made matters worse is that the poor among them were not random strangers. These weren't enemies passing through trying to pick a fight. These were God's people. This is the poor among God's people. They depended on the wealthier and the healthier under the civil theocratic government of Israel to take care of them. For example, God had clearly instructed Israel in Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 and 8. Jot this down, read it later if you'd like. Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Uh, friends, these Jews have been given mercies new every morning. The exile and the return was proof that God is faithful. And yet just like many of us, we can say, God, you are so compassionate. 
and we don't show that same compassion to others. The warning of Proverbs 21.13 just must have been skipped in their Bible study that week. It just must have been forgotten on their minds. Which reads, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. But it wasn't just neglect that was occurring. That was sufficiently wrong in and of itself. But the poor were actually being taken advantage of, fleeced, exploited which means there was a greater degree of injustice that the wrath of God was ready to fall upon. You see, some of the Jews were having to mortgage all their assets, fields, vineyards, houses, just to have another meal. Some were having to pay off the taxes from the king by using those assets. Think about this, parents. They didn't just give their children a part-time gig for the summer to make minimum wage. They forced them into slavery, treating them like animals, inhumane, as kids. Gentlemen, that includes your daughters. Times are bad, and then times can get really bad when you mess with vulnerable kids, the poor and the kids. God deeply cares about. Friends, in multiple places in the Old Testament, they were totally contradicting what God had commanded them to do and to be as his people. Listen to a few of these texts. Exodus twenty two twenty five. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. Leviticus 25, 35 to 38. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. He shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. In Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20, you can read on your own time. Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20. Beloved, what is going on in Nehemiah's day is dark and devilish. Dark and demonic. This was a clear, unmistakable, indisputable, unrepentant act of rebellion to God. They knew what God's word had said, and they chose to do otherwise. The Bible makes a distinction between mistakes and sin. It's really useful for categories in counseling, and some of you have an overly sensitive conscience that think you sin all the time and actually you just forgot the bread at the grocery store. That's not a sin. Now, if you made a vow to the Lord and your husband and your kids, well, you need to fulfill your vow. But beyond that, there needs to be a little room for grace here. The Bible does give categories for unintentional sin and intentional sin, sinning with a high hand, and mishaps. You need to have some distinctions there. Friends, this going on in Nehemiah 5 is not a mishap. This is not a mistake. This is a flagrant sinning with a high hand 
with God Almighty staring at what they're doing and taking advantage of his people. Rosalia Butterfield contrasts mistake and sin this way. Quote, sin is not a mistake. A mistake is taking the wrong exit on the highway. A sin is treason against a holy God. A mistake is a logical misstep. Sin lurks in our heart and grabs us by the throat to do its bidding. What sin is grabbing these Jews by the throat and jerking them around wherever sin wants them? The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 1 Timothy 6.10 Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Matthew 19.24 Friends, sin that was creeping in their hearts is sin that you and I can't see quickly with the eye. It's greed, covetousness, envy. It was suffocating any spiritual life that people had. We are American citizens. Thank God for this country. Thank God for our freedoms. Thank God we were born here. Oh, but friends, one of the greatest temptations of living in a Western country like this is that the almighty dollar is our God and not almighty God who gave that dollar to you. Remember what Jesus said. He said, the seed that fell amongst the soil with thorns, it sprouts up. What is those thorns? The desires for other things. The deceitfulness of riches. It enters in and it chokes the word. Uh, prosperity and wealth is a blessing from God. And prosperity and wealth is a test from God. It is a difficult challenge to manage wealth because of the dangers our hearts have towards it. Not a sin to have it, but boy, it is a testing of what our hearts will want to do with it. And these Jewish people, they were bombing that test. They loved stuff, power, and money more than people made in God's image. Friends, pray that here at CCBC, we thank God for his prosperity. We pray that God would prosper us for the purpose of knowing him, making him known, and being a blessing to others. You can pray that individually in your own life. Pray that for our church, but pray that we would also be very, very careful to whom much is given, much is required. So it is safe to say life at home for Nehemiah was a mess. It was a dumpster fire. It was a wreck. It was inhumane with children trafficking and insanity on the other. The emotional and physical and financial duress was unrelenting. Friends, their unity that they were enjoying in Nehemiah 2, Nehemiah 3, even really Nehemiah 4, was starting to become unglued. Friends, that's why we should never take for granted true peace and true unity among God's people. Unity is only something God can create. We can preserve it. We can protect it. 
We can pursue peace with one another, but God is who unites us together. Friends, pray here at CCBC that we would protect that unity. Even tonight, if you're a member of this congregation, come back as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, as we remind one another what Christ has done for us, and we recite the church covenant. You want to know what it means to protect the unity of this church? Read the church covenant on the way out. Those are the commands and expressions of love that protect the unity that God has formed in our midst. The early church faced this same temptation to unglue. You remember Acts chapter 6? The gospel's growing. Many people are coming to faith. The church in Jerusalem is like a mega church on steroids. And Acts 6 comes and there's a complaint between the Greek-speaking Jewish widows against their Jewish widows because the daily distribution of bread was being neglected. Those who were vulnerable, those who were weak, those who depended upon the economy of that local church were being overlooked. Friends, they had to do the same thing. The apostles had to take initiative, had to address the issue. They had to create a division of labor to deal with that issue. Maybe you're here today and you're someone who's unsure about joining a church because you've heard lots of drama, lots of problems, and lots of notions of churches not getting along. Well, we're not trying to make believe like that doesn't exist. Uh, We have our own sins. We have our own problems. We have our own temptations to be divided even here. Praise God, we don't have sharp divisions over major issues. Friend, if you are truly a Christian, the safest place you can be is obeying the Lord and being under the accountability and fellowship of a local church. You might say, oh, I want to keep it a safe distance from those messy people. No, it's being at a distance from God's people is where your soul's in danger. As one author has put it, never stay away from the church because the church is not perfect. How lonesome you would feel in a perfect church. Back to Nehemiah 5. Homes which should have been a safe haven for rest and peace became a heart-crushing auction of everything that meant something to them to be given away. Friends, they were losing everything. Everything. Kids, money, resources, assets, any hope of a family in the future. If you couldn't imagine the gravity of this, you know who their main accusations were against? It was against those who were looked at as leaders among God's people. There is an extra degree of egregiousness when those who are put in leadership over God's people take advantage of God's people. There is a reckoning coming on false preachers and false teachers who fleece God's people by doing silly huckster things on TV with prayer rags and oil and give to my ministry, sow a seed, reap a harvest, they are going to have a reckoning on the day of judgment for messing with Christ's sheep. Oh, friends, pray against that ever happening here at CCBC. If the leadership here ever began exploiting members of this church, fire us. Excommunicate us first, then fire us. Because to whom much is given in leadership, much is required. So what does Nehemiah do? Well, Nehemiah wasn't passive, was he? He took initiative. A few things I want you to see as observation points. Look at verse 6. Nehemiah was deeply affected by what he heard and saw. 
Nehemiah was deeply affected by what he heard and saw. It says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Simply put, Nehemiah was angry at what God is angry at. Nehemiah was angry at what God was angry at. Friends, look over this past week. Were the things that got you the most angry things that God in his word tells you he's angry at? Or were you angry because you didn't get what you wanted? Those are two different things too. Between a mistake and sin and anger at things God desires us to be concerned about versus things that just ruffle our self-centered feathers. Nehemiah was a shepherd who smelled like a sheep. His sheep were hurting, and it affected him. In other words, his understanding of who God is and how heinous sin is, it affected him. It moved him. His Christianity had some teeth to it. His theology began to actually shape his emotions by what he saw in his life. That reminds us of Jesus, right? John chapter 2. When he goes into the temple and overturns the tables, that righteous anger is said that zeal for God's house consumed him. Never sinning, never once sinning, and yet possessed a perfect hatred of sin. Friends, pray that we would have zeal like that. Zeal for God's glory, zeal for God's church, zeal for God's word and become less zealous on things that really won't matter five years from now. Brothers and sisters, we must be on guard against becoming numb to the pain and suffering around us. Notice that Nehemiah, when he gets this complaint, he doesn't go, well, good luck. No, he, he faces it. He hears it. It affects him because it affects them. But it affects them even more because it affects what God thinks. Beloved, we should also pray to have a deep, selfless love for other people's problems so they don't have to bear those problems by themselves. We should have a deep, selfless love for other people and their problems so they don't have to bear those problems by themselves. We need to have, like one author said, we need to have true rugged love. I like that. Rugged. Doesn't sound romantic, ladies. But for guys, we kind of like that. Rugged. It's got a little edginess to it. You might say, what's rugged love? Here's what the author says. Love is rugged when it's strong enough to face evil. Tenacious enough to do good courageous enough to enforce consequences, sturdy enough to be patient, resilient enough to forgive, trusting enough to pray boldly. Oh, let's pray that God would give us a rugged love so that we can get in the trenches with people's problems and care for them. That's what we see Nehemiah do. Nehemiah is embodying that true love does not enable sin. Parents, some of our parenting challenges is that you are tolerating and enabling things that are actually perpetuating 
your children's depravity. You need to think carefully about how I'm disciplining my children. What am I allowing them to do or not do? What am I doing just so I can stay emotionally attached to them, but you know giving this is actually prolonging them growing up? True love does not enable sin. And true love wants people to grow up. The second thing I want you to notice about Nehemiah, he was deliberate in how he addressed the problem. He was deliberate in how he addressed the problem. Look there in verse 7, he says, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. Hey, kids, you see me? I know y'all do, because some of you have been telling me what I've been saying in sermons, checking me. I like it. Kid accountability. It's good. Have your parents ever said, think before you what? Oh, yeah, let's, kids, say it louder. Think before you, there we go. That's excellent advice. Your parents are super smart to give you that advice. That's exactly what Nehemiah's mom apparently did. He's angry. He's boiling. But you know what he did? He took counsel within himself. In other words, he preached to himself before he listened to himself. I cannot act on my emotions immediately. That's the mark of a fool. I need to think. Who needs to be opposed? What needs to be addressed? And how are we going to fix it? I've got to devise something I'm going to say that is rational and reasonable. Think before you speak. Third observation, Nehemiah feared God. And he used his role to lead the people to repentance. Nehemiah feared God and he used his role to lead people to repentance. There in verses 8 to 13, you really see Nehemiah take initiative. You know what the mark of a leader is? They don't have to hold the office or title. Just someone who has leadership strengths is they take initiative initiative. They're not passive. They don't have to be told what to do every second of every hour of every day of the week. Nehemiah opposes and exposes what's going on in the community. In verse 6, he was against the nobles and officials, so he identifies the people. Verse 7, he holds a great assembly against them. Friends, you know what Nehemiah did? What a whole lot of people need to learn real quick? He didn't sweep it under the rug. He's not a justice vigilante. He's not going around trying to be God's wrath. No, he's using his God-given influence, his God-given responsibility as governor, as a leader, someone they looked up to, to expose hidden darkness. He calls out their child slavery toleration in verse 8. He calls out their poor witness for God and their lack of fear of God in verse 9. In verse 10, he calls out their greedy and callous hearts. In verse 11, he does what every good friend and good pastor and a good parent will do. He doesn't tell them just simply you're wrong. He doesn't just tell them you're guilty. He actually tells them how to repent. Friends, if you're going to call someone to repentance, you need to also tell them how to repent. It's a part of our discipling. I'm wrong and I've done wrong, what should I do about it? In verse 13, then Nehemiah warns them not to take his charges lightly. So how do the people respond? I mean, it's a strong word, right? <laughs> Nehemiah, you could just imagine the adrenaline, a little bit of blood rushing to the face, keeping himself under control, but there's a righteous anger. 
did they listen? Did they take his warning serious? You know what verse 8 says initially? They were silent and could not answer him a word. In other words, they were caught. They were convicted. Someone turned on the light in the room. Oop, I got those three cookies mommy said I couldn't have. They had no defense. They had no excuse. There was no one to blame shift. They were naked and exposed. God used an instrument in the Redeemer's hands to expose their hypocrisy and their unloving hearts. Friends, notice this was not easy. No one in here should love hard conversations. That's weird. I mean, maybe if you're like on the front lines of a detective or you know, SEAL Team 6, I, I do want you to be kind of like into that. But generally speaking, if you're always looking for a fight, looking for a brawl, looking for confrontation, ugh, it's kind of a turnoff. But Nehemiah, he was willing to do hard but necessary things for the glory of God. Hard, uncomfortable costly things for the glory of God. Then in verse 12, notice how the people resolve to repent. We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then in verse 13, they lead into a praise. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. In other words, they had agreed with God. They heard God speaking through a man that they were wrong, they had sinned, and they needed to make things right. But did you notice what occurred in verse 13? They were convicted, they were exposed, they were called to repent, they were told how to repent, and where did that repentance lead them? Joy in God again. Joy in God again. Some of our grumbling some of our lack of praise is because we haven't repented of what the Spirit of God has been pointing and pinning us down for months about. Weeks about. Days about. Psalm 66, verse 18 or 19, and there you have to check it. It says, if I would have cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Husbands, 1 Peter 3, 7, dwell with your wives in an understanding way as the weaker vessel. Why? As those who are co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers be not hindered. A guilty conscience can't sing God's praises. A guilty conscience is self-inflicted torture. Oh, friends, God convicts us to lead us back to joy. God calls us to repent, to renew our praise. That's what they're doing. They're having a praise song together. Amen. Because God is freeing them of their self-deception. Friends, this is a beautiful, an amazing example of what true repentance looks like. If you are counseling with someone or friends with someone or married to someone, or whatever, and you're telling them, I see this in your life, you need to repent, come back to God, here's how you follow Jesus. Or you're raising kids, or you yourself realize you've been in sin. You've been in the wrong. Here's 
among many things, there's three fruits you will always see in true repentance. And I glean these from Nehemiah 5. Number one, there is humble, faith-filled agreement. There is humble, faith-filled agreement. In other words, you hear what has been said from God's word through a instrument or messenger, and you agree with God. You're right, Lord. I'm wrong, you're right. Thank you for sending this prophet my way. Thank you for sending this brother or sister my way. You're right. God has pinned down the issue and you have a holy surrender to the will of God. No more kicking and screaming. No more running and hiding. No more putting up your weapons of being defensive. You are silent, but your silence is humble recognition that God is right. Number two, there is an eager readiness to do what's right in the eyes of God. There is an eager readiness to do what's right in the eyes of God. If you've sinned against someone, you will eagerly pursue that person to restore that relationship if you can. If you've stolen something that didn't belong to you, you return it to them. If you've lied to someone, you go and tell them the truth. If you've sinned in multiple families, maybe even the whole church has been affected, you might even need to publicly apologize because your sin has touched publicly other people's lives. A parent may need to apologize for the actions before their whole family. A child may need to apologize before their siblings. An employer may need to apologize to their whole staff. Repentance will want to make right what our sinful behavior did wrong. Number three, in genuine repentance, there is a focus on fearing the Lord, not fearing the consequences of sin. There is a focus on fearing the Lord, not on fearing the consequences of sin. Kids, that means if your parents catch you doing something you shouldn't do, you should not be afraid fundamentally that you were caught and that you're going to have restriction now. You need to be fearful that God has seen it all along. And what he says matters even more than your parents. Adults, that might mean... When you confess your fault, you may lose your job. When you tell your spouse, finally, the double life you've been living, you may lose your spouse. In owning up to what you have done, you may need to break up with that boyfriend or girlfriend and never get back with them again. You may be disqualified from serving as an elder or deacon. You may be kicked off the sports team. You may lose your scholarship in school. Uh, you may have people not trust you for a very long time. Friends, do not fear the consequences of sin. Fear living in sin and being self-deceived. Fear the Lord. Accept his forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Complete in thee, justified, sanctified, glorified, done deal. And yet, whatever consequences I have to face in this life, come what may. That is genuine repentance. But you know, Nehemiah didn't just preach this. He didn't just get in the muck and deal with all this crazy dysfunction. He led by example. I'll go quickly through this. In verses 14 to 18, you can read closer on your own time. Let me summarize some things that he did. Remember the little question I asked at the beginning of the service? How do you know you fear the Lord? 
How do you know if our church fears the Lord? Really, there's two things that Nehemiah 5 is teaching us. Verses 1 to 13 taught us this. Those who fear God will oppose and expose what God disapproves of. Those who fear God will oppose and expose what God disapproves of. In verses 14 to 18, we read this. Those who fear God will seek to be generous to others for the glory of God and the good of others. Those who fear God will seek to be generous to others for the glory of God and the good of others. Just a few things to note in this passage. In verse 10, Nehemiah was fair in his financial dealings to those who were in need. He lent money and grain to poor families, did you notice verse 10? Without exacting interest. In other words, Nehemiah was beginning to practice what he preached. Nehemiah was also selfless and sacrificial with his resources. He used his God-given authority not to lord over and crush the people, but to bless them. In verse 14 and verse 17 and 18, he held back the mega million dollar salary as governor. That was a lot of money this past week. Did y'all hear about that? Anyway, I'm sorry. Not in the notes. He had a lot of money. The food allowance for the governor. He could have used it all on himself. And he actually held it back to bless others. And in verse 16, he would acquire no land from the poor. He said, no, get your land back. Take care of your land. I'm not going to take your land. One really good principle about giving in the New Testament is the concept of grace giving. The gospel of grace, God treating us better than our sins deserve, motivates us to give. How do you protect your hearts from greed? You stare at the gospel. How do we protect our hearts from selfishness and stinginess? He who was rich became poor, that by his poverty, we might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Randy Alcorn puts it this way, increased income doesn't necessarily mean that God is saying spend more. More often, his real message is give more. Lastly, Nehemiah is a servant leader. Did you notice there in verse 16? He says that he himself began to work on the wall with them. To my non-Christian friend, when you hear the name of Jesus, what image comes to your mind? Is it a weak, sissified gardener walking through the lilies, grazing with sheep? Is it a harsh taskmaster that doesn't care about you? Well, if so, both those images are wrong. Jesus would teach his own disciples that he would lay down his life as the Lamb of God for the sins of his people. He would pay our debt, liberating debt that we accrued. We are not merely victims of other people's sin, though that's true. We are also culprits. And Christ paid that debt in full. And he died on the cross, rising again from the dead, offering us all the blessings of the new covenant in him. And friends, this Jesus, who possesses all authority, embodied what servant leadership is like. He did not lead by just merely demanding. He led by serving and sacrificing. Nehemiah, imperfectly, is depicting that servant leadership. Friend, if you're not a Christian here today, that is a Savior worth following. 
no boss, no dad, no other president, no leader will ever be worthy to follow as much as Jesus Christ is. Turn from your sins. Agree with God you're wrong. Fear the Lord. Trust in Jesus for your salvation, and you will be saved. Lastly, Nehemiah was focused on God's faithfulness as he served God's people. Look at verse 19. This is not a throwaway verse, by the way. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. One reason we grow weary and we want to give up fighting the good fight of faith is that we lose sight of who we're trying to please in our life. When we run into problem after problem in our families and other places, we tend to become very nearsighted and overly introspective. And from the daily grind of deadlines and chores and whining and broken relationships, we get discouraged, we get worn down. We begin to ask ourselves these questions, what exactly am I fighting for? Who is it that I'm really trying to seek approval for in this life? Is there any good that will come from loving and serving and leading my dysfunctional family? Yesterday, I received a text message from a young man named Richard that I met back in 2015. I haven't seen or talked to Richard in years. In fact, I honestly, I was telling Julie yesterday at the pool, I can't even remember the last time I saw Richard. I don't remember the last conversation. I don't remember anything. But out of the blue, he text messaged me. And I want to share this with you as an encouragement to you. When you are ministering to messy lives, messy families, messy situations, and you basically think nothing good ever changed. You just spent years pouring your heart out to someone you have no idea how they're doing today because you haven't caught up with them. I share this as an encouragement to you to remain steadfast, serving and caring for the dysfunction of others. Here's what Richard said. Hi, Blake. I hope you are well. It's been a long time. I've been sick with COVID and bronchitis and a great deal of discomfort, often bedridden for the past week. I've been thinking and brooding a lot, and some of it has been very tough. God revealing idols in my life, areas that I've yet truly to commit to him. It's been painful, but it's God's great kindness. I've also been reflecting a lot on the people God has used to encourage me over the years, and you came to mind. I remember the occasions we met up and talked on the phone. I remember the many text messages you sent me from Scripture preaching God's truths. There were times when I might have seemed distant to you. I was going through many things, often feeling shame and embarrassment for sins that I was struggling with. Rather than confessing and being open, I held them in. God's been growing me, teaching me to humble myself before his throne. But I wanted you to know that I truly appreciate those times that you were there for me, candidly sharing with me your own struggles, listening to my own, and faithfully sending scripture to me. God used your efforts mightily. I hope you are doing well, brother. God bless, Richard. The Lord has a strange way of sending people into your life to remind you your labors are not in vain. Friends, the Lord sees your labors. 
He sees your tireless, daily, weekly, yearly care for the dysfunction in your families and in our church and in outside our church. Friends, we can call people to repentance. We can explain to them how to repent and why to repent, but only God can grant repentance. Parents, you need to hear this. I'm going to smash some legalism that's been in so many parenting books and destroy it right now. We can influence our children's behavior, but we cannot determine the outcome. Spouses, stop trying to be the fourth person of the Trinity. You are not going to have that role. We can influence our spouse's behavior, but we cannot determine the outcome. Friends, that is God's prerogative. We can influence through teaching, through example, and through generosity and giving all your resources and goods that God's given you away. Members of CCBC, when we encounter or see dysfunction in another family's life in our church, we don't look down on them, we get low with them. CCBC ought a place where dysfunction is not commended, but it's not turned off. We help one another. We roll up our pants legs and get in the muck and mire with them, cutting those burdens in half. Others might forget what you've done to bless and help them. But our God will remember all you've done for his glory. He will not forget. He will remember. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that you are a generous God. You have given us the greatest gift that we don't deserve in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that we have the perfect example in Christ as a servant leader. He who was rich became poor, that by his poverty we might become rich. Lord, we pray at CCBC that you would teach each one of us how to take initiative and pursue and to become angry by the things that ultimately you were displeased with. And Lord, we also pray for genuine repentance from our own hearts and those we are seeking to minister and care for. Lord, we love you, and we pray that CCBC would be one of many churches that truly do show off your glory by our love for one another. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.